We spoke briefly last week about God's Word and the Bible and what we mean by inspired. And I don't think that after that particular message I have ever been as quite um, disappointed in the conveyance of the truth as it was last Sunday. I just, I felt like uh, it just uh, taught so much better in the classroom and what I'm trying to do, as you know, is uh, what I'm teaching in Bible Doctrines class I'm trying to bring uh, to the church as well. And so uh, I'm going to assume from here on out that uh, we can agree that when we read our Bibles, we are reading God's voice, that we're reading God's word, that it is inspired and errant, and that it is authoritative, accurate, and true for all that it presents. So um, I hope that's what you gained from last week. That was certainly the intent, though I felt like it was a little bit confusing. If you have any questions about it, I would love to talk with you or visit with you about what we mean by inspired and how we know that the manuscripts that we have are reliable and thus the translations we have are equally reliable. So today we're going to move on as we are in class. We're going to talk a little bit about God and some of his attributes. It's no accident, I think, that inevitably when we talk about God and begin to define who God is and uh, the nature of God, we do so in the negative. In other words, we talk about God's immutability. In other words, he does not mutate. His incorruptibility. In other words, he cannot be corrupted. And we begin to talk about God in the negative because he is so much other than we are. And so we just take all the things that beset us, that we're always changing, we're always corrupted, we're always sinful, we're always... Uh, different things, and so we begin to negate them and then attribute them to God because He is unchanging, uncorruptible, holy, and perfect. And so uh, we do that quite a bit. This week, or this week, we're going to talk about some of the attributes of God. And as we do that, we're going to try to remember that all of His attributes can never be divorced from the other attributes of God. In other words, His justice can never be divorced from His grace. And his grace is never divorced or removed from his sovereignty. And his sovereignty is never divorced or removed from his omnipotence. And so we talk about these things and we have to remember that they are in God always all together at the same time. So we can't pick any particular attribute of God and somehow make it contradict the other attributes that we uh, assign to God or understand from Scripture that God has. And we're going to talk this morning about four primarily. We'll touch on some others incidentally, but we're going to talk about four attributes of God primarily. And the reason I've chosen these four, and we could talk about a number of, of attributes of God. We could talk about his immensity, his transcendence, we could talk about his, his aseity, his immutability. We could talk about um, his eminence. And uh, so we can talk about a lot of different attributes of God, but then it would become very classroom-like again. And today I want to celebrate God and who he is. And so we want to talk about four of his uh, attributes and how do we know who God is. One of the things that we talk about when we talk about God, first of all, is his omnipotence. And that is the idea that he is all-powerful. And so when we talk about God's omnipotence, we're talking about his power. Uh, for God has a power, uh, but we have a power like 
His. It's an, it's an attribute of God that he has given us, but it is not like his in the extent to which it operates within us. And by that, we mean that we have power, but our wills and our intellect do not automatically achieve the thing that we will to do. But when we talk about God's omnipotence, it is a power that is without limit and his sovereignty and his will, they automatically combine and whatever God wills, he does carry it out. Now, we might will to do something, we might desire to do something, and yet we lack the power to do the thing or achieve the ends that our will would have us achieve. That's because we are limited. God is limitless. And so when God wills something, God has never willed anything, and that thing has not come to pass. It is absolutely impossible for God to will something and then it not happen, because God is said to be omnipotent in his power and sovereign in his will. And those two things conjoin in him so that when he wills something, there is within the willingness or the will of God, there is the power to effectuate the outcome. By that, we know that if God chooses to do something, then it is accomplished. God's power is different than ours. And sometimes if we're not careful, we become a little concerned about this power that God wields because it is so unlimited. And in our 20th century, uh, some people are a little uncomfortable talking about God having so much power. And there's an old saying, in fact, that, you know, absolute power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's because we are corruptible. But we rejoice that God is incorruptible. He cannot be corrupted, and so his grace, his mercy, his justice, and his goodness, even though he has absolute power, are not corrupted or diminished in any way. God is said to create ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing, because his will, that is his sovereignty, what he chooses, is at the same time his omnipotence, the power to carry out the choosing and the will, which is why it says in Genesis that God said, let there be light and there was light. Now we ask, have to ask ourselves, and one of the things we talked about last week was a little bit, um, in the language of scripture, it is a book about God, it is about the divine, but it is a book to humans. And so the writers are conveying divine truth about God, but they do it with human terms. And so when it says God spoke, or God said, let there be light, how does that happen? Because we know, I think, you probably do, that in space, uh, before there was uh, a planet or there was anything and God created it, if he spoke, did anyone hear it? It's kind of like the old adage, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's around, does it still make a sound? Or, uh, you know, if a man speaks and his wife isn't around, is he still wrong? Um, but then... <laughs> Anyway, God spoke, it says, and the fact that he speaks tells us something about him. That is a theological statement. That is not a statement indicating that God vocalized some kind of utterance uh, and, and it could have been heard. Okay, When it says he spoke or he said, it is the picture that he willed. The Hebrews use the word said because in the saying is the doing. You have to understand that when they talk about God said, it is in the saying that it is done because his will, his sovereignty, 
is connected to his omnipotence, which is his absolute power, so that when he wills, it is carried out immediately without inner intervening cause. It is carried out by his omnipotence. So when God spoke, he willed, and it came to pass. Thus it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Because those two things work together. But we have to understand that even if God spoke some kind of utterance, there is no atmosphere in space to carry the vibrations. And there were no people around with tympanic membranes to receive the vibrations. So when we talk about God speaking, we're not talking about God speaking in the way we speak. It's a reference to the fact that God intended and within that intention was the happening. Okay, because his sovereignty is connected to his omnipotence. Jeremiah 32, 7 says, there is nothing too hard for God. Matthew 19, 26 says, with God, thing, with God all things are possible. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Daniel 4, 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing, and nothing can stay his hand. In other words, it's not just he does all that he pleases because he is just and right to do whatever he wants. That's usually what we think about when we think about, well, he just does whatever he pleases, right? It's sort of a, a way of saying he just does whatever he wants. What the writer is saying is God does whatever he pleases. In other words, he effectuates whatever he pleases. There's never been anything God has willed that has not come to pass. But we can't divorce that from his other attributes. It's never an arbitrary power that God has. It's never a power in the vacuum of or without his other attributes, namely his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness, his love, his mercy, his grace, all of these are related to his omnipotence and his sovereignty. And we'll have a lot more opportunity to talk about his sovereignty and his omnipotence when we get to, to uh, discussions about you know, the, the elect and the reprobate and so forth. But we're talking right now about this, the sense in which God wills, and because he wills, it is. And there is no connection between, there is no differentiation or intervening cause between the will and the effectuating of what God wills. You and I are incapable, at least I am, of willing a building into existence. You and I are incapable of willing a, a beautiful painting into existence, but God simply wills that there is light and there is light. God wills that there is an earth, there is an earth. God wills there to be a, the stars and the cosmos, and it is. Because he is sovereign, he wills it. Because he is omnipotent, that will is done. Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Psalm 147.4 says he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Second Chronicles 26 says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations, power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. So that what God wills 
comes to pass. Now we understand that God sometimes works through proximate causes and secondary means, and we'll talk about that when we get to other sections. But as Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce his name, said, the will of God is the first necessity, logically, of everything. Now, if you understand logic at all, logical necessity, there, there are necessities without which something cannot be. And Augustine said this, for anything to be, the will of God is the first necessity, because you and I would not be here were it not for God's will. Nothing would operate the way it does without God's will. It is no accident you look up uh, or you look in history at all the great scientific discoveries we've made from the, you know, the smallest particle of, of the atom and understanding all, all of that atomic theory and all the things that we can't see. And yet somehow we have figured out how it works. None of that happened by accident. It works that way because God willed it to be so. Under his power, we speak of his omnipotence and his sovereignty. And perhaps no writer in scripture encapsulates for us these ideas better than the great prophet Isaiah. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Isaiah. We're going to begin with chapter 6 of Isaiah because I think it's so important to set um, sort of the background, the backstory of what Isaiah has been through so that by the time we get to where we're going in chapter 40, by the way, just so you can uh, be ready to go there. But we're going to start in chapter uh, chapter 6 because it sets the background really for the rest of his of his writing, but particularly chapter 40 is, is a beautiful part of it. Chapter 6, Isaiah relates a vision. And he says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling, filling with smoke. I mean, what a vision to have of the Most High being exalted by, by the heavenly seraphim. And when he says that the foundations trembled at him who spoke, this isn't even God speaking yet. This is just the seraphim speaking. And it is antithetical. In other words, one is crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty or the Lord of hosts. And the other cries back, the whole earth is full of his glory. And back and forth this goes as the angelic hosts proclaim the wonder of the Most High. And as they did, it says, the foundations trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then he says in verse 5, Then I said, this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, 
with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Then I heard a voice. And the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. It's interesting to me that Isaiah didn't ask what the job was. I mean, the Lord of hosts just said, Who shall we send? Who will go for us? And immediately he says, here am I, send me. Well, he doesn't even know what the task is yet. And if you read on, the the task is not a good one. I mean, what a, what a terrible, well, not terrible, I mean, it's God's doing, right? But uh, this, is, this is not an easy ministry. He says, here am I, send me. And God said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. And I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. Wow. I mean, when when you hear God say, who shall we send? Who will go for us? What you want to hear is, I want you to go and you're going to grow this magnificent, you know, this magnificent church or this, all these wonderful things are going to happen. You're you're going to be such a a popular prophet. and, And then God gives him this assignment. But he agreed to go before he even found out what was being asked. Why? Because he did not agree to the assignment. He agreed to God. He agreed and he committed that he would go regardless of the assignment. I'm not signing up for any particular thing. I'm just signing up to be obedient. So obedience came before he even knew what the job was. I love the response that he has. And so we see in this as he sees the magnificence of God, it doesn't matter what God asked him to do. He is saying yes in response to the person of God. See, God doesn't have to say anything or do anything. All he has to do is show up. And in his nature, he is so austere. He is so transcendent. He is so others. He is so holy that all he can do is cry out, I am undone in some translations. This one says, I am ruined for I have seen God. What a magnificent God he must be. And so we understand why it is by the time we get to chapter 40, which we'll turn to in just a few minutes, but we get to chapter 40, he talks about God's holiness. And 35 times in his book, Isaiah calls God the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel. And he talks about his holiness repeatedly over and over. Well, you think, why, why does he keep calling him this? Because he has seen God. He has seen this vision. In chapter 6 lays the foundation why he uses it 35 times. Because he understands what it means to be holy. Or to at least seen the holy. I strongly suspect him. And people write songs about it. and You know, what we're going to do when we get to heaven. And... In fact, for some reason, I was thinking about this morning, the, the old hymn, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, right? We shall tread the streets of gold. And um, here's my shower song this morning, you know. So. And I, I, I was thinking about that when we all get to heaven and then there's the great song, 
Um, I can only imagine. I strongly suspect that I know exactly what you're going to ask God when you get to heaven. I, I think you'll probably ask him the same thing I'm going to ask him. I know exactly what you're going to ask him. I know what every person is going to ask God when they get to heaven. How do you know, brother? You can't possibly know. I do. I tell you what you're going to ask him. Nothing. You know why? He doesn't owe you an explanation. We got people walking around. Well, I'm going to ask God about that someday. Why this? Why that? Why the other thing? You know, I heard a guy say one time, one of the dumbest things I heard anybody say, but they, they were going around just asking people, do you believe in God? This guy said, of course I believe in God. Somebody has to be to blame and somebody has to be accountable for all this mess. Like somehow he is going to hold the sovereign and holy God accountable. You and I are going to ask God exactly nothing. When we get to heaven, we're going to fall down because we are ruined in his presence apart from Christ. God doesn't owe me an explanation. He doesn't owe you an explanation. I actually did see uh, we were watching a, a series on whatever it was, Netflix or Prime, whatever. And the narrator, the narration on, on this particular series is so well written. I, I keep thinking, I wish I could write stuff like that. And the narrator's talking about, he's, she said, I wondered why God made, you know, uh, the flower, but then put it in the shade of the thorns. I wonder why God, you know, allowed death in the height of life and all these sort of poetic moments where we wonder why God. And so she's asking these questions. Why did you create the world this way? Why is it so tough? Why is there death? Why is there strife? And, and then she says, then it, it dawned on me because he didn't make it for us. Then why are we here, Pastor? Why, why did he create the, the, the world? Why did he create any of it for one reason? Soli Dio Gloria. For the glory of God. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. That's why it's all here. For the glory of God. Having such an experience as the backdrop, probably one of the greatest chapters penned in Scripture, at least one of, one of my favorites, and I'm sure you've heard, I know you've heard parts of it, but if you turn to chapter 40, then in Isaiah, parts of it you've heard, I'm sure it's... Uh, Chapter 40, a certain section of it is made very, very popular by the, the, uh, the, the movie Chariots of Fire. Have you ever anybody seen the Chariots of Fire? It's the story of, uh, you might recall, Eric Little who, who refused to run in the Olympics because he was supposed to run on a Sunday. And being a good Presbyterian, it violated his conscience to run on a Sunday, and so he refused to run. And so there's the scene where... Um, Oh, Harold Abrams, I think. Abrams was the runner's last name. He's running because he's his teammate, I think. He's, he's running. And so the camera is showing his teammate, Harold Abrams, running the race on a Sunday morning. And then it cuts to Eric Little as he's preaching and reading God's word in the Presbyterian church. He's sort of looking down on the austere congregation there with dressed all in black and whatever. But he's worshiping and he's reading from Isaiah chapter 40. 
And he reads the part, says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. He takes up the coastline like fine dust and princes and emperors are nothing to him. And and I, I don't know that it's actually true. That's That was the verse for the day. It almost seems too good to be true. It's Hollywood maybe. But it certainly fit what was going on in the movie because everybody wanted him to run. The leaders wanted him to run. Everybody in charge wanted him to run, but it violated his conscience and he wouldn't do it. And so he's reminded that God is far bigger than all these people who want you to do what you know is not right. He wouldn't run on a Sunday. We've, uh, we've come a long way from Eric Little's conviction, haven't we? This is completely incidental, but I, just, I was just thinking as I was thinking about this text and how it's in that movie, and the whole movie is just about his conviction uh, at least that part of the movie is about his conviction that he, he won't run on a Sunday. And I thought to myself, is there anything anybody won't do on a Sunday now? Pretty much no. You want to have a little league game? We'll be there, coach. You want to do this? We'll be there. What about church? Yeah. People say, I don't know about the second, you know, um, whether... We'll, the Sabbath and keeping it holy because the Sabbath is the Sabbath rest and so forth. And, you know, we Christ is our Sabbath. And so there are many people who say that that commandment's not even operative anymore. And so um, you know, people just said there's a whole spectrum of belief from meaning it means nothing anymore to, you know, it means you can't even... Uh, do things that are pleasurable or enjoy yourself on a, on a Sunday if you're, you know, in, on the other end of the spectrum. I suspect somewhere in the middle, I understand that the Sabbath rest we have in Christ, but I also think there's something about the Lord's Day and keeping it holy that ought to matter to us. I certainly don't believe it means nothing. But anyway, he's reading from this book, Eric Little is, and he's reading from this chapter and, and he reads about how uh, everything is basically uh, as nothing to God, and so God is so much superior. And we'll get to the most famous verse probably out of this uh, passage that I, that I know you've heard, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Look at what he says, chapter 40. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call, call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And a voice is calling, clear the way in the wilderness for the Lord, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice calls out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We jump down to verse 12. He begins to ask questions that are sort of rhetorical. The idea is, is pretty, um, pretty obvious. It's all talking about God's transcendence 
In other words, he is so transcendent from us. He is so other than us. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in the balance and the hills in a pair of scales. The idea is the immensity of God. Who is like that? And only God is like that. You look at verse 13. He says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord as his counselor? Who has informed him? And we see the omnipotence of God, his intelligence. He has learned nothing from anyone ever. God has never been curious. He does not know that that feeling. He has never had to find out anything. And it always bothers me when, when preachers talk about, well, you're going through this testing time because God wants to see how you're going to act. That is absolutely untrue. It is as though God, who is omniscient, omnipotent, knows everything forward and backward in all of history, that he has to discover something. God has never discovered anything. When we th- learned how to split the atom, God already knew how to do that. He wasn't, he wasn't impressed. And all the stuff they're doing over at the CERN Corporation, you know, creating black holes in the earth and making time warps and the Mandela effect and all the stuff that, you know, we conspiracy buffs like to talk about. God is not in that game of trying to discover anything. Why? He already knows. He created it. So verse 13 captures his intelligence. Nobody has ever advised or informed the Holy One. Verse 14. With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of just justice and taught him knowledge and informed him the way of understanding? This is a way of respect or speaking to God's aseity or his independence. In other words, everything that happens here, regardless of how it affects you and I, does not diminish or affect the character of God. I am not saying by that that God does not care. What I am saying, though, is if you and I suffer, does not diminish his holiness. If you and I have want and need... It does not diminish who he is. It doesn't bring him down. It doesn't bring against him a charge that somehow he is inadequate. He cares, but he is not changed by anything or anyone. Verses 15 through 17. So what he says about the nations. Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor is beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Now, again, that's not to say that God doesn't care, but it's it's pointing to the fact that God is sovereign over even history. When the Bible talks about nations, it's talking about the progression of this world because we believe that God created this world for a distinct purpose. We are moving on a linear path from point A to point B, and it is going somewhere intentionally, directly orchestrated by God, by his own will. In other words, it's what he wants and by his own omnipotence that we talked about earlier. By his power, he is directing all of history to a certain point that culminates the way it started solely for his glory. That is God. Verse 18 through 20, he has power 
over idols. And some of these I'll, I'll go through quickly and not read for the sake of time. Read through them. He has power over idols in uh, verses 18 through 20. He has power over all the peoples of the earth, verses 21 to 24. They're like grasshoppers. And he stretches out heavens like a curtain. The princes are nothing. And this is the passage that Eric Little is reading. Verses 25 and 26. To whom then will you liken me? That I should be his equal, says the Holy One. See what God is saying? Who should I be like then? Who would you compare to me that I should want to be like him? And there is no one. There is no one like the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created this, these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And justice do me escapes the notice of my God. Why are you impugning me? You ever heard people say things like, well, I'm, I'm not mad at anyone. I'm just mad at the way things are. You know what we're secretly saying when we say that? I'm mad at God. Because I can't be mad at anyone. I'm just mad about the way things are. We better be careful when we say things like that. That's what he means when he says in chapter, uh, verse 27 there. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, somehow that my, uh, my way is hidden from the Lord? Or justice has escaped me in the eyes of my God. Don't impugn God. He is sovereign and holy. You recall how this started? The first few verses of, the, of this chapter, he said, Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. And if you're like me, you read through that and say, if God is so transcendent, he's so other than us, he's so far out there, he's so immense, he's so powerful, he, he's, he's terrifying in the best possible way. Think, how is that comforting to me? Somebody has said, and it's absolutely true, the biggest problem you have in life is that God is holy. Because you're not. How is that comforting? Because just as his sovereignty is connected to his omniscience, his transcendence or his otherness is connected to his imminence. This is what Isaiah says. After saying all that about God, all this God that has all power over idols and stars. He knows all things in his immensity. He can't be shut in or hemmed in. Everything that he wills is so. And all the wondrous, austere things that he has just said about this holy, perfect, sovereign God. And then he says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God. Yes, this God. The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. Do not become weary. He does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. 
And to him who lacks might, he increases his power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Because he is near. He is both at the same time transcendent and beyond and other than us, and yet he hears your prayers. We do no service to people. It's just my, my opinion theologically, I guess, but I don't, I don't think we do a great service to people, you know, saying, here's what you need to do. Call God Papa. You want to give people what they need in this life? Give them the immensity of God. Give them the sovereignty of God. Give them the omnipotence of God because he is not in the same situation you're in. And you should be glad about that because because he is not in the same situation you're in and because he's everything that you and I are not, he can give strength to the weary. He can give those that would falter wings like eagles that they would soar. This is the immensity of the God we serve. This is the good news. Have you not heard? Do you not know that this God who is so transcendent has come near? What a wondrous, what a wondrous thing. So we go back to verse 9 and pick up on the verses that we skipped. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up and do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. But like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. So this transcendent, this omnipotent, this sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-creating, all-encompassing God carries us like a lamb in his bosom. Do you not know? Have you not heard that this God is imminent. In other words, he is near because his transcendence is never divorced from his imminence. So you say, well, is God holy? Is God other like Karl Barth said? Yes. Or is he near and tender like Jacob Schleiermacher said? Yes. Is he far away? Is he so holy that I can't look upon him? Yes. Is he so gentle? That in the Christ, he calls himself gentle and lowly. Yes. How can those things be? Because he's God. Behold, you're God. This is who he is. In closing, I share with you, or remind you of a story where Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, this is Exodus 33, by the way, verse 18 and following, Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. 
And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show my compassion on whomever I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. And you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about when my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my own hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So this happens. God passes by and the sheer wake of his glory shakes the ground. He doesn't have to say anything. He just has to show up. But he could have said anything, right? He could have said, that's right, Isaiah, tremble and fear, for I am holy and you're not. He could have said, that's right, Moses, you want to look upon my face, you'll be as a dead man. Be in the presence of my glory and quake and fear. Worship me or die. He could have said all those things and been perfectly just in saying all those things because he is that transcendent. But he is so imminent. This is what he chooses to say. The Lord passed by in the front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's what he chose to say. He's holy. He is other. He's transcendent in wonder. But he is near. He is present. Full of loving kindness. Abounding, it says, in loving kindness. What a God. What a God we serve who poured out his life to give us what we would never have apart from him, a righteousness not our own. It takes a holy righteousness to satisfy a holy God. And you don't have it, and I don't have it. There is but one, the Christ. What a God we serve. Let's pray.